Welcome in to the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Mile High Green Cross. Sign up for their loyalty program and receive 20% off your entire purchase once per month. I'm your host, Drew Creaseman. With me is our beat writer, Patrick Lyons. And because we're talking Ken Burns baseball again, my mother, Barbara Creaseman, as we continue through now to the eighth inning, a whole new ball game. And I, I want to ask you both what you thought of the inning, but I wanted to make a note up front because it, it happened up front and it's sort of a, a side thing. Uh, it's a music thing that I wanted to touch on. And um, I think it sets the stage for everything. And uh, it, it was really jarring in the documentary. You know, we've been seeing a lot of still photography and hearing either solo acoustic guitar or piano as our only music and really classical versions of the national anthem or Yankee doodle dandy and some of these other songs. Um, But he opened with Jimi Hendrix version of the national anthem in this one, which is this perfect symbol of the tumultuousness of the sixties and Hendrix, when he performed that song at Woodstock, like he had just come back from Vietnam and it was this kind of crazy, weird, rude awakening. And and when you listen to the whole thing, they even overlaid very, very cleverly like sirens and some of the sounds of, you know, the riots and and, uh, the violence of the 60s because his version of the national anthem was meant to sound like that kind of turbulent violence. And so I thought that was just a really nice but jarring touch. I thought it was the best intro of the series uh, so far. Uh, Mom, I'll start with you. What did you think of the episode? Uh, I liked it a lot. And, and obviously that was kind of my time as a young person. And I agree with what you just said about it setting the tone for that period in history of what we were going through as a country and uh, how baseball was evolving. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was a stroke of genius there because that was going to be the topic throughout is not just you know labor unrest throughout the game of baseball, but just civil unrest really. And that's I mean, I think they're they can kind of be an extension of of one another. Um, especially when you hear, you know, the words of, of Kurt Flood throughout talking about, you know, Augie Bush saying, well, a black man needs less money to survive than a white man. So that's why you're going to get paid less. So uh, I thought it was it was fantastic having, you know, Hendrix at Woodstock just playing over all the, the images of the civil rights movement. It was it was fantastic. And that corresponding with with the scenes just before it of Evitz Field being torn down sort of you know, yeah. showing that there's going to be this changing of the guard all throughout the 1960s, not just the diamonds in which the game is played, but through the players that, that played the game and, and those sitting in the stands as well. There's sort of a, a fire and rebirth going on here, right? Like in baseball and throughout the decade. Mom, since, since you mentioned it, is that how you remember it? Is that how it felt at the time? The changes, oh yeah, the, yeah, 
the the civil unrest. I mean, I was a teenager and we were watching race riots on TV thinking, oh, my God, this is happening in our country. This is happening in uh, places through, throughout the country, you know, not in the small town I was from that I knew about, but it became more prevalent. I'm, uh, and it was, it was scary and saddening. I remember one of the a peripheral debates around it was with Jimi Hendrix and the Star Spangled Banner and some people saying he was making fun. He was putting down, he was whatever of the country because he played it differently. And as Patrick described with sirens and different things and other people saying, no, it's extremely symbolic of where we are and the Vietnam war raging and getting at that time, getting worse and us becoming more aware of it. So I think it was very symbolic at the time. One of the things that one of the writers talked about, I can't remember which one was that, um, there was this kind of irony in that baseball was the American game, but it was where Americans went to get away from America. Uh, did, were you using baseball in that way? Was it um, at all an escapism for you during those crazy times? No, I don't. I don't think of it like that. And maybe it was because I was younger, and it was baseball would so much a part of our lives. It was still a part of our lives. It still was something good that was there. But as a teenager, I don't remember trying to escape that. I remember thinking, how do we fix that? And as an example, they, they mentioned when Martin Luther King was shot and killed. Well, he was actually shot and killed on my birthday. Um, and, and it was, it was a really sad and really thinking, oh, my God, this can happen in our country. I didn't, you know, not even if I was 17 years old, I, I turned 17, uh, not even enough to think that wouldn't happen in our country. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think when I originally heard that quote about, you know, they turned to baseball, it, it was to turn to baseball to forget about the country, right? Is that, that was what the comment was? I think so. Yeah, it's it's you know I don't on one hand you you hear it as like okay that's just it's a bit of a of escapism you know to to go back to something that's so familiar and um you know something that is more white than it is um, having color in, in any shape or form but you know overall I I think you couldn't have possibly done that especially when you look at the rosters of those teams now having a handful of African-American ballplayers and, you know, during the sixties, having Latin American ballplayers as, as Roberto Clemente was, you know, finally referenced in this inning. So I think what was happening in baseball, I think really actually reflected American society a lot more, not, not necessarily with the, the population and the demographics, but just at least that there is going to be this changing of the guard um, between the players that were allowed to play the game now and the players on the field being, you know, paid appropriately and that they were not going to continue to, you know, be these well-paid servants and, and that it, there was definitely a, this change that was coming. So I, that was a strange comment to, to hear that, but, you know, maybe more early in the 60, in the, the early sixties, that was the case that you could still kind of escape and, and, and ignore some of the things that were going on in the game. Also, if you're a younger person, you don't understand, 
the things that are going on in society and behind the scenes, as oftentimes is the case when you're a young person and just enjoying the innocence and the pure, the pure sweetness of the game, which is what hooked us all in in the first place. Yeah, and you know, I to to get onto the field as you were talking about there, it's uh, I get to twist the knife on both of you right away because your beloved Yankees <laughs> finally lost. It yeah. came to an end. Their their decade of dominance came to an end. In fact, in spectacular fashion. Oh yeah, uh, we we played almost a hundred years of organized well more than 100 years of organized baseball but not not 100 years of major league baseball but uh, a lot of baseball has been played for this to be the first world series in 1960 that ended on a walk-off home run from bill mazeroski uh, is pretty amazing uh, when you consider the depth of it and it was uh, a Patrick, game I, yeah <laughs> it was it was a game 7 that's yeah. the other piece too. Is that it's it wasn't just that it ended. You know, Joe Carter hit a a walk off home run that ended the World Series. But I believe that was that was only in Game Five. Uh, game Five, Game Five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But this is was Game <laughs> Seven in this you know seemingly incredibly lopsided World Series that you know was fifty. The Yankees scored fifty five. Pirates only scored twenty seven. So when the Pirates won, they eked out a victory. When the Yankees won, they just straight up demolish the Yankees. Don't get rolled over runs, man. Run differential ain't mean a thing. Like get out of here with that run differential. (laughs) Yeah. The only run differential matters is at the end of nine innings. Ultimately. Um, I I said on Twitter for those, those following is that Bill Mazeroski is, is still somewhat of a curse in my household because my dad was, (laughs) was nine years old when this world series went down and he was a Yankees fan. And you know, that was, that was really crushing for him for it to, to have gone down like that, right? In the prime of his innocence. Oh, oh. The, the little kids crying in the stands, yes. And ultimately that walk-off home run was what I think, you know, got Mazeroski in, into the Hall of Fame. You know, he, he had eight-time gold, gold glove winner, um, you know, back when, you know, defense wasn't valued quite as much on a grand scale, like, you know, it, it was obviously valued you know, to win games more so, but now we look at, you know, wins above replacement and all these other things. And it's like, all right, you know, but how valuable was a guy? Can you, you know, quantify that? You know, he, did, he was a 10 time all-star, um, but doesn't, doesn't have a lot of the, the, the big numbers that like jump out. He never led the league in anything. Um, was it, was a really good second baseman, but uh, eventually, you know, a few years ago, he, he did finally get into the hall of fame much to the chagrin of, of Yankees fans who really only know him as the guy who walked it off in 1960. It sure was amazing to see uh, Yankee players and fans and writers, everyone bemoaning it so much after all the winning the Yankees got to do to, to just be so devastated by the one that got away. It just goes to show that no matter how much success comes your way, baseball will still break your heart. That's right. Because you can't always win in baseball. It's right. It's the, even if just you do can't. mostly, you just can't. And there will come a time and then somebody else will be dominant too. Look at the Orioles oh, now. Well, 
Yeah. <laughs> right. They're talking about the dominant Orioles. And yeah. wasn't that the one you just reminded me? This is way later in my notes, so I'm oh, off sorry. already, which is great. Uh, no, you're no, it's bad. This is what we do here. Um, have you not listened to the podcast before? Um, uh, where the the guy gets hit and the shoe polish and, oh, yeah. and, yeah. Earl Earl and Weaver. you just know. Like if that happened to me in MLB the show where like it didn't look like the guy got hit, but he did or some weird glitchy thing and the guy got on base and there's two outs. I'm going to give up a home run to the next guy, whether it's video game baseball, real life baseball, uh, the World Series, the worst team against the best team. <laughs> that moment happens to you. And there's Bill Mazeroski. Uh Did mom, we, we, we talked before about you, you know, kind of. Uh, switching from team to team was that end of the that sort of era of the Yankees was that the end of your kind of fandom toward those Yankees well in not not really but not in following it or it being the be all end all you know you get a little older you start watching other teams uh the other team that I got on TV because I grew up in Oklahoma was um the Cardinals so right. in, in some way, the Yankees were my American League team and the Cardinals were my National League team, right? And those were the ones. So, yeah, I always had an affiliation with the Cardinals, too. But when mine really changed, I guess, was when I went to the University of Kansas and started going to see the Royals in 1969. And, uh. Uh, yeah. And the Royals had a lot, there were a lot of games and the Royals got better and and they would play the Yankees either, you know, it's getting close to the postseason or maybe it was whatever game it was. And it was like, oh God, we still feel like the farm team to the Yankees when they would come in. And that was Reggie Jackson and Chris Shambliss and players like that. It was like, come on, you guys. You oh, so we'll get to that next yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have that to look forward to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what's but in this one, oh, what, go ahead. Patrick. What's interesting what you're saying, Barbara, is that like that that '69 Royals team was they were an expansion team at that point, right? The Kansas City A's had moved to Oakland because the A's but, had just left, you know. Right. Yeah. So so there's but, brand new team, Kansas City Royals in '69. Right. But what I found was interesting that I went back and and found out was that you know they they referenced how you know one of the reasons why both Maris and Mantle had had so many home runs and, you know, it had been doing so well in the 61 season had to do with expansion. And we, we always know, Hey, when you add a couple of teams, then obviously it's going to thin the herd out, but by how much really? Right? right. Well, when they did the expansion draft for the 1961 season, since the AL, since they were the ones getting the two teams, the, the LA angels and the new Washington centers, expansion senators, um, the only players that were taken were from American league teams. So they didn't have an expansion for all of major league baseball of the other 16 uh-huh. teams at the time. They uh-huh. just said, okay, you can only pick from these eight teams in the AL. And I, and I think, I guess that makes some sense because then the next year in 62 in the Mets and Houston Cole 45s came about, right. they could only select players in the national league. So they're kind of, I guess, you know, was a general balance, but, at the same time, you were only picking from the worst of half of the teams uh, that are out there. So that that really, I think, thinned the herd a lot. And that, that was something I, I never uh, had thought to even look into and go, wow, yeah, there must have been some really atrocious pitchers 
facing the Eminem boys that year. So, so, so there's a reason the Washington senators were famously terrible. It's, it's not just, a, it's like, it's just cards are kind of stacked against them there. Um, Okay, so one of the things, since mom, since you brought up the Cardinals, and I want to jump around here, but they just kind of stuck them in for just a minute, and then we'll get back to some more Yankees stuff. Uh, Stan the Man, that was really our big yeah. Cardinals thing. We got introduced to Stan the Man, usual, uh, on a scale of 1 to 13. <laughs> I don't oh. know. Oh. How big is Stan the Man? How, 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 how much were you into Stan the Man? Oh, I, yeah. I know Dad was yeah. a big Stan. Oh yeah, yeah. Stan the man was the man. You know, he was, and that was another it reason. Is. You know, yeah. to just watch the Cardinals because he was wonderful, and he was, in many people's idea, the right kind of player. Right? He went yeah. about his yeah. business. He played well. He wasn't uh, a showboat, uh, but he was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I got to meet Stan Musial when he was seventy-nine years old. Oh, wow. uh, this was at a this was at a three thousand hit club event in Atlantic City, which is about an hour south uh-huh. of of where I grew up in Jer- New Jersey on the Jersey Shore. Have I mentioned that? I'm sorry. And, what did you uh, do? <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. Anywho, uh, and and so there are all these all these greats that are there, and uh, you know while we're kind of waiting for the sessions to start, we were standing there watching. Uh, uh, shoot, I, I forget the name of the boxer, but we, he was just kind of holding court. And then I hear this voice come up from behind me and says, excuse me. And I go, I know that voice. And I turned and look and it was, it was Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn basically <laughs> told me to get out of his way. I was like, whoa, that oh, was wow. cool. That was cool. Oh. Didn't get to ever officially meet him, unfortunately, but uh, Musial was at the top of our list of guys where we said, oh man, we got, we got to make sure we leave this place with his autograph. So he went and he signed it and as soon as he was, and he had so much life. He was seventy nine years old, but sitting there with his legs crossed, seemed so happy to be with his, you know, his fellow brethren of fantastic, you know, ball players around him. He signed the ball and he tossed it up in the air right to me. Like I was standing right in front of him, but boom, he tossed it up, and I caught it and made sure I didn't smudge his signature. <laughs> and I, I just thought, like, wow, okay, I, I guess I kind of had a game of catch with Stan Musial. I'll take it. I'll that take counts. It. Yeah. It counts. Yeah. It counts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You might also find it interesting, listeners, that um, Stan Musial was born in a small little town of Denora, Pennsylvania. And that is also the same town that Ken Griffey Jr. was born. So think about oh. that. They, really? Two Hall wow. of Famers born in the same town. Also, I'm going to take it one level deeper. They were both born on November 21st. Same no. birthday, same town. Unbelievable, right? And if that is some, um, yeah. And if we're going to continue with the same, Stan Musial, of course, had three thousand six hundred thirty hits. Well, he had the same amount at home as he did on the road. One thousand. I wrote more. that down. They yeah. That. yeah, that's the yeah. one, right? That's the one. Eighteen fifteen, right? Yep. That was amazing. That doesn't seem possible. It does. Yeah. It does. <laughs> that, that, again, that's one of those things you think was made up. Yogi right. was doing no. the math. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to that's right. check that. That's right. That uh, was amazing. Yeah, he he retired. You know that the one thing I liked about this you know documentary and just going back and reading books is putting things into perspective of like at the time, 
Like right. when Musial retired at the time, he was second all time in hits behind Cobb. And you go, whoa, okay, that 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 might raise mm-hmm. an eyebrow. He was first all time in the NL. And I know in the mid two thousands, I had got one of these. Uh, it was it's called the Baseball Encyclopedia. They stopped making them around two thousand seven. I want to say it's even if you can get a, a copy that's you know twenty years old, they're just fantastic to have. And you can flip through, and it and it you know each season has its own page. It has every player that has ever played. It's got Moonlight Graham in there with his one at bat or with, excuse me, with his one game and no mm-hmm. at-bats. And I went and looked through at all the record books. And at the time, in circa 05, 06, Stan Musial was actually the only ball player in the top 20 all-time in doubles, home runs, and triples. That's how well-rounded um, of a player he was. He was even in the top 20 in triples. He's no longer top 20 in trips, but just just – fantastic and and I love how they said his last hit he ever got it went right past a young Pete Rose <laughs> Pete at second Rose. base yeah. who later eclipsed Musial's record of most hits in the NL and later eclipsed Ty Cobb's record of most hits all time. That's one of those things you almost go no yeah can't can't have happened. Can't be can't be uh but there it is. I, I loved the line one of the pitchers said uh what would I do with Stan the man? I'd throw him my best stuff and then I'd go back up third. That's oh, right. <laughs> I laughed. I howled. I howled at that for so long. I love that. Amazing. And, and uh, for, for anyone out there who's an Albert Pujols fan, they, in the early in his career, they said, man, you are the man. And he said, well, no, no, that's, that's no. Stan usual. And, right. and they said, and that's why they started calling him El Hombre because it the machine. do. Well, uh-huh. tra- El Hombre means the man in Spanish, man. but he, yeah, I don't yeah. think he, oh, I don't think he likes it. started to call him. Yeah, because even though yeah. it, it's Spanish, it's like, no, no, Stan, no, Stan think, is the man, yeah. not me. And then later the machine had yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Let's, right. let's go the other way with it. Yeah, right. yeah. Right, right. <laughs> he's going to be doing that. Um, no, I, I, I love that stuff. So, all right, back to New York City. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And the summer of 61, 61 and 61. We talked about the movie. We talked about uh, the race already. We've talked a lot about the Yankees, but mom, I'm not going to not let you talk about (laughs) 61 in 61. And while we were on the subject of coincidences and fun stats and weird things, I always drew this parallel that Roger Maris hit 61 home runs in 1961 and that record stood until Mark McGuire hit a 62nd home run on 9-8 of 1998. Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't it weird? The numbers? <laughs> yeah. The numbers. Wow. That's a good one. So uh, where were you in the summer of 61, Barbara Creesman? Take us, <laughs> take us oh, to the, the oh. race. And and were you heartbroken it wasn't the Mick or were were you one of these people that ran Roger Maris out of the game? <laughs> no, I mean I was I was ten years old, and and yeah, it was the Yankees and and Roger Maris was the new young guy coming up and and I I was actually yelling for Mickey to win and then you know he gets hurt and he can't do that and so I didn't not want Roger Mer- this is what I don't understand about sports fans sometimes is there would be people that wouldn't want Roger Maris to do it because they wanted Mickey to do it I didn't feel like mm. that at all 
I felt like, no, he needs to go for it because in sports, when people, you say, oh, there'll be another year. Yeah, there'll be another year, but you may not be anywhere close to where you are now for whatever that is, the game, the playoff, or the stat. So I was I was all in with Roger Maris. Yeah. That's a good point about you You just have to, like, you have to take your time when it comes. You just have to be, hey, I'm here now. Now is the time I should do it for those that have been in our, our new DNVR lounge on, on Discord. We kind of talked about a scenario for the Rockies similar to that. And while comical, it also would be, you know, like, hey, this is the time. And so those of our subscribers that uh, haven't jumped into the DNVR lounge, definitely do that because we're going to be talking about just about all this stuff. And we already were today. Now, Roger Maris actually had a, a slightly better season the year prior in 1960. He was uh, MVP in 60 and 61. So one of, uh, you know, only about 12 players to ever win back-to-back MVP awards, which, you know, is special in and of itself. And considering that he actually ended up breaking Babe Ruth's record, there is obviously a case for him to be enshrined in the Hall of Fame at some point. He's not. His number is retired by the Yankees, as are 73 other numbers uh, in their team's history. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Only 73? Oh, my goodness. I might be off by – oh, wait. They did retire Jeter's, 74. I'm sorry. Okay. I, uh, yeah. That's why. That's why. That's why Aaron Judge wears nine hundred ninety nine on his back because they had to go into the triple digits. You know, come on. Uh, um, that's got to be our next thing. We got Larry Walker in. Uh, Helton, the numbers look good. Let's. You know what? Let let me let me finally get over my whatever with the Yankees and with the New York and my inferiority complex. <laughs> I'm going full in. And yeah, let's get Roger Maris in the Hall of Fame. It's yeah, really kind of ridiculous that he's not. I agree. Yeah, yeah. He, he he grew up in North Dakota, uh-huh. which is crazy. So sometimes if you see like those maps that lay it out and say, you know, you know people in Idaho are, are big Dodgers fans, like what? Well, uh-huh. typically you'll see you'll see North Dakota as as being a, a Yankees territory because I mean, shoot, Roger Maris. There you go. That's that's it. And Oklahoma, because of Mickey Mantle, right? Those towns, absolutely. Not even towns that don't have it. These old states. You saw when they were going (laughs) to the west, back to flyover states. That's us. You know, (laughs) we didn't have anybody. So, one of the elements of this, back to our conversation about. Uh, nuance and complications and tumultuousness and debates and the time was, of course, the asterisk because uh, Roger Maris had eight more games in which to hit his 61st home run. And he didn't do it in the original number of games. It took him till the final game of the season. And so, uh, as we've discussed before, both on in this documentary and when we talked about the movie, 61 Asterix. Um, <laughs> they, were, they made the decision uh, to do that. And, you know, I always felt like I understood why there's a very, like, natural, inherent reason to get why that happened, right? You're like, well, yeah, more games means right. you, you've got more chances to do it. So it makes all the sense in the world. But I thought that the 
was it which writer was it patrick you you're, you're gonna know um the way he explained it i liked it and i was wondering which one it was too he also had to play at night yeah yeah oh he right i think that was being Oakland. Oakland. That was, thank you that was yes. the man in the red that you haven't That's yeah right. The man in the red sweater, not not uh, Ken Bone, but it was it was Daniel Oakren, the, the, <laughs> the uh, Wow, the that's a deep cut. Thank you, Ken Bone. <laughs> uh, but but Daniel Oakren, uh, I may have mentioned this in one of the first things. He's actually the founder of uh, of uh, fantasy sports rotisserie leagues. In 1980, yeah. he started the first one in a, in a chicken shop in New York City that was called like uh, <laughs> La Fran La Fran La Francaise Rotisserie. Right, it was made rotisserie right. chicken. That's where the name rotisserie baseball comes from. Daniel Okren and his group of baseball nerds. Oh dear! Our sport is just the best sport ever. I don't care what anybody else says. It's I mean, just, it is. It, it, it just, just is. is. Uh, so the one thing he didn't mention, he mentioned, you know, uh, that Roger yes. Maris had to play games at night uh-huh. when right. Beirut didn't. That he had to travel to the West Coast. Right. When Babe Ruth didn't, um, that he had to deal with these. He didn't mention integration. I was the Thank one uh, that I thought was like right there on the table, man. Um, he ha- had to hit against uh, people of all creeds and colors and, and talent. And uh, so eight games, as I've, ri- I've written it here in my notes, eight games versus night games, travel, integration, etc., uh, I I think the sixty one is more than legit. And the pitching, how the pitching had changed, and they were making, you know, the year the pitchers. The farm systems now, yeah, yeah, yeah. What what Babe Ruth did is, you know, more impressive, no doubt, because he was hitting more home runs than teams. But if we're talking about the single season home run record, sixty one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean. It still is sixty-one. It is. It still is. It but is. yeah, no, no. You, and again, high, you know, hindsight being twenty-twenty, you you say no, give the man his record because Babe Ruth doesn't need to have all the records. He doesn't need all of that. Yeah, we know. We can talk about it. Like that's what that's what baseball is. That's what the Hall of Fame and Museum is. It exists as a place to have a conversation and say, "Well, Pete Rose is here. Look, he's he's in he's in that display case, and he's over here. Well, why isn't he in the hall?" Let's talk about it, right? Yeah, I well, agree. Maris, right? Maris hit no. sixty-one. Yeah, but he did it in more games, and, and and weren't there like more teams? And and now African Americans could play. So was Babe Ruth actually the better? Well, let's talk about it. That's right. what makes baseball great. That's what makes put baseball Joe Jackson great. in. Put Pete Rose in. I want Joe Jackson. No, I'm not in. saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saying I you can have the conversation. The guys are still there. They're in the museum part. They're just not in the, in the hall part. You know, they're not I ignored. Think... They're not struck from history. But we can have the conversation about it. I think that makes it a little more fun in a sense. I think you can put the asterisk by Roger Maris's name, but I think you better give a better explanation than because he had more games. Because yeah, you know that True. makes it sound that makes it sound like well, geez, he had all these chances more, but did he really? I mean, did he have more at bats mm-hmm. than Babe Ruth? Because I bet you Babe Ruth got every at bat. I bet he wasn't ever you know substitute. You know, there's all these different things you can get into about it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, very that's true. One of the great things about the game that Let, always seems to be the case. Let's meet well, in the middle. Let's just dot the I in, in Maris with an asterisk. <laughs> let's just 
Are we good with that? We're okay. We can move on. Oh, oh it's terrible. It, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a tough question. I, I agree with your sentiment there, though, Patrick. That it should be uh, just another thing to talk about. And I'm honestly not against putting Pete Rose or uh, Joe Jackson um, or Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, for that matter, into the hall of fame. And if we need asterisks to put by all of them, then let's do it. And, and then Mark getting Roger Maris in, mm, I'm not sure McGuire's numbers hold up, but that's a, that's well, a conversation for another ooh, time. That's my boy. That's my boy. Um, Let me some Big Mac. I, I, that's a conversation for another time, but uh, I do want to ask you this and, and mom, you can give your, your Mark McGuire cause it's related. You can give your Mark McGuire answer inside of this because my question, and we'll, we'll get through these notes. This is going to be a two hour long episode and I don't care. Um, <laughs> is what happens when a ball player hits 62? What, what, what if in a, in the non steroid era, uh-huh. I don't know who's come closest. Joey bats. Does Bautista come he hit 58 a few years ago, something like that? Uh-huh. But Ryan Howard what, at 50. Ryan Howard. Okay, yeah. What I mean, if a guy hit 62, should we should there be a celebration? Should there be I mean, what is the single season home run record 70 or 73? <laughs> well I put you in a tough spot there. You know, but. We probably don't have enough time to talk to have the whole steroid talk, right? And right. it was it was right. also an eleven an evolution of you know guys getting steroids to heal to heal better to sooner, be more whatever before, and it wasn't. So when was it actually illegal? When? What were they addressing? Because there's a lot of talk about that. And I remember hearing on public radio a whole series of discussions about steroids, particularly in baseball. Didn't seem to worry about if it was in football or any of those other sports, but baseball. And the the guy saying, the, the reporter that done the research saying, yes, this is an enhancement. And there's so many people that take it just to stay in the game, just to keep their job, just to get over the injury better, that it had become pretty pervasive. And so, you know, it's a whole another part of that story. We all know people yeah, and, that take and, steroids to heal from regular stuff these days, right? Yeah, very true. There, You know, if we're talking about the performance enhancers, you know, one thing that, you know, Sandy Koufax talked about, and, and we'll get to his early retirement at the age 31 is this idea of taking painkillers specifically amphetamines. They called mm-hmm. them greenies at the time. Jim Bouton wrote a fantastic book called ball four um, all about, you know, his time with the New York Yankees and talking about, you know, man will coming in, you know, late and just before a ball game and, and after having a long night out and, you know, just kind of need to, to pop some, amphetamines that's it some greenies some some speed some uppers just to keep going that was just readily available just like how now drew you and i we go in to talk to bud black before a ball game and there's double bubble and sunflower seeds well they had just (laughs) amphetamines right out there too and that Mm -hmm. was now i'm sure that was available to babe ruth um i don't know i don't know that it was as rampant as it was 
during the 60s and and somewhat of the 70s and and how cocaine was rampant in the early 80s. So it's yeah, it's it's definitely a, a topic to to get fleshed out further, but um unfortunately well, these these guys while they might be our heroes, they are they are far from boy scouts. And you know if it was available and it helped at the right. time of Babe Ruth or whoever, it wasn't like he was uh-huh. A, a saint about any of those yeah. kind of things or <laughs> other people too, not just him. Yeah. Right. Bingo. Yeah. All right, cool. You all made some very fantastic points. I'm ready to elect you mayor of whatever town you're running for at this okay. particular moment with those political answers. But the question was, <laughs> and I am a journalist, damn it. And I will okay. press my own mother for an answer. We have to answer the question. <laughs> Go ahead. What's, what's, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Having worked in local you. government for 20 oh. years, I know how to avoid answering a question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. What What happens when someone hits 62? Do Is there a way? To, I mean, what do you feel? What do you do? Um, that's my question. What happens when someone hits 62? Well, the floor did, belongs to you both. What, what did McGuire hit? What did Sammy Sosa hit? What did those guys hit? Sosa hit like. Yeah, McGuire hit 70, Sosa hit like 68, and Bonds uh-huh. hit 73. Uh-huh. And then people okay. who weren't cheating, nobody's ever hit more than 61. Okay. No, well, yeah. now wait a minute. <laughs> there's cheating and there's cheating. If somebody hits 62, they get to they get to have a record and it's gonna have an asterisk by it, and they're gonna explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think what ha- ends up happening uh, in that case, and that's a fantastic question, Drew, too. Um, am I am I currying favor? Fantastic question, Drew. Uh, I thought so. That's why I asked it twice. <laughs> why you're one of the aforementioned journalists uh, of the right. Denver baseball scene and one of the damn finest baseball writer writers oh, of wow. America associations that I, I know personally. Um <laughs> Of all of all of the BBWA guys that I have in myself, I mean, like the sure. top six. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Damn well, straight. Then, top Damn four. Straight. <laughs> but but what I think ultimately ends up happening is it it starts the conversation again about yes. the nineties because right. I it hasn't been really right. touched upon. You know, uh, Pete Alonso last year goes out and hits fifty three home runs in two thousand seventeen. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton hits hits fifty eight. So it's been touched on. And, and I'm sure it's been written about in those cities and and written about nationally. But until it, you know, those home runs kind of recapture the public's uh, consciousness, uh, you know, it, it's just going to take more of a conversation. And with with teams as a whole hitting so many home runs, I think a single player hitting 62 also is is not as impressive because you're going to have two teammates together that could combine for a hundred home runs. And that is going to be more interesting than a, a single player doing it because of, mm. of the rampantness, I think in a, in a lot of ways of the home run. So it's really just devalued it. So you, you have to, you have to hit 74 to have the record officially and, and really unofficially. But when 62 does get um, hit and, and someone finally does get there, I think they'll definitely be celebrated and, you know, the journalistic community and I think the hardcore baseball fans are going to really look, you know, really look kindly uh, upon this player, even though they're going to sit at, you know, 10th all time for the single season lead. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's, it's just like you said, it, it just creates 
conversation, and that's one of the things that our sport is never short on. And speaking of conversation, it's time to have maybe an uncomfortable, but a very necessary conversation because you got to get manscaped. Uh, Everybody out there, fellas, check that. <laughs> That's right. We're doing this. Doesn't matter if my mom's on the pod. Look, it's a fact of life. You got to stay fresh. You got to stay clean. You got to smell good. Uh, you, you get the Manscaped situation. They send you a bag. There's all kinds of fantastic stuff in it. First of all, the lawnmower going to take care of all that extra cabbage you got going on down there. You don't need any of that. You don't need that stuff. You don't want any of that stuff. But the cool thing is, first of all, and again, I'm saying this in front of my mother, no kind of disappointments about it. Very confident saying the most comfortable boxers I've ever had in my life. Straight up. Just a fact. Uh, and then some of the best smelling, uh, they, they got shower gel, they got spritzer, they've got, and I'm going to say it, ball deodorant. Hey, you got to take oh. care of every part of your body. <laughs> You got to make sure that you're smelling good and you can use the code DNVR20 to get 20% off and free shipping. You got to make sure that you're smelling good and fresh and clean and that you're feeling good and fresh and clean. Uh, As they used to say, I believe it's a baseball analogy. It's a baseball phrase. It says, look good, feel good, feel good, play good. You can't play good if you don't feel good. And with Manscaped, you feel good. I can promise you, if you're feeling weird about it, you're on the fence about it, don't be. It's uh, You're going to thank me. Not publicly, privately. Inside your head, you'll say, ah, I knew it. I knew all along I should have gone and gotten Manscaped. So check it out, uh, even for the smelling good stuff. Uh, even if you're weirded out about the other stuff, you're not sure you want to you know, shave it down there. It, it's good for you, but if you don't want to, the smelling good stuff and the boxers in the bag you get are worth it alone. You'll thank me, uh, and whoever's going down there will also thank me. So, all right, folks, that's where we're going to have to wrap up this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. We went on for a little while, so the next one's going to be a little bit longer. I mentioned the possibility of it being a three-parter at one point. It's not. It's going to just be a two-parter. We just spent a lot more time on this inning for whatever reason. I think we were all in pretty talkative moves, moods and getting off on tangents, and it was a lot of fun. So I'll have that up for you here before too long. In the meantime, make sure you're following everybody on social media. You're subscribing to everything. You make sure to take advantage of that deal of the week before it's over and get yourself a cool hat. And you just continue to be absolutely awesome. I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman on behalf of my mother and Patrick Lyons. We will see you next time at the ballpark.